Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return-stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to returnstacked.com. Now on with the show. Okay, three... Two. Oh wait, wait. Where's my beer? All right, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> Let's do it. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Corey Hofstein, and this is Flirting with Models, the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy. Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. My guest in this episode is Jason Thompson, a portfolio manager at the William O'Neill family office. On paper, Jason doesn't seem like a particularly good fit for this podcast. He runs a highly concentrated, discretionary portfolio of growth equity names. He can be levered long, net short, or completely out of the market, all at his discretion. What becomes rapidly apparent in our conversation, though, is that while Jason has ultimate discretion, he adheres closely to a disciplined rules-based process driven by the empirical research of an in-house quant group. The core framework of that process retains the spirit of William O'Neill's original CanSlim methodology, but now has nearly a half-century of learning and nuance layered on top. As a quant, it is tough to hear growth and not think expensive. Jason dismisses the idea that growth investing is all about headline-making, high-flying stocks, though, and emphasizes the importance of valuations. In fact, about a quarter of his holdings are turnaround plays. We talk about the role of investment themes, the importance of position sizing, and how Jason thinks about managing risk in a portfolio with less than 10 names. The idea of managing a portfolio the way Jason does definitely put me out of my comfort zone, but our conversation made me reconsider what I think I know about growth investing. Jason, welcome to the podcast. Super excited to have you here. Talk about something that's a little bit different for our, I think, a quant podcast. We're actually going to be talking about growth investing, which is maybe one of those factors that exists. It's a little murky. There's not a lot of literature on it other than maybe some negative literature, thinking of it sort of as the opposite side of value. You're here to talk all about growth. So maybe to kick off, you can give the listeners a little bit of background about yourself and the firm that you work for. Thanks for having me here. Yeah, so I'm Jason, and I work for O'Neill Capital Management, which is a family office fund for William O'Neill. And I guess a little bit of my background here. So I've been on the buy side for nearly a decade now, and I've kind of always been here. So I'm really fortunate for that. And one of the ways I got it started was if you think of your typical junior year in college and you're getting a summer analyst position, most of your uh, friends in the finance program are going out for the investment banking programs. I originally went out and was fortunate enough to get an internship on the buy side, which later turned into a job. 
and I maintained that status for a couple of years. Now, what was interesting is that when I was on the buy side with the first fund back on the East Coast, I was tasked with looking at new and innovative companies. And that pretty much fits hand in hand with growth investing and the William O'Neill mythology. So I looked at that, I researched it, I really liked it, and I decided, okay, I want to work for the Wand Group. And that's fast forward today, maybe six or seven years later, and I'm at the William O'Neill companies. So again, to clarify, I'm a portfolio manager, a discretionary one. I manage a growth portfolio with a long equity bias. And essentially with a portfolio, I have full autonomy. So what that means is from the security selection, asset allocation, portfolio construction, managing risk and expected returns, I have control of all of that. And the way I'm able to kind of navigate, as you mentioned, these murky growth waters is that we have a 50-year legacy at the company. And within that, you have a lot of research. So for example, our fundamental team is very deep. Our quantitative team is very deep. So I'm able to leverage both of those aspects in order to achieve some pretty fun and interesting results in the market. I think that was one of the most interesting things when I first started talking to you was when we were chatting over over drinks, you were telling me about being a discretionary manager, which is very foreign to me as a quant. But the more I spoke to you, the more I realized the depth of the quantitative research that you had at your disposal. And I think that's going to come out a lot in this conversation. Before we dive into that, though, I think the whole idea of growth, at least in the quant world, is often conflated with expensive or glamour stocks sort of being the opposite of value. I know a lot of indices are even defined that way, that growth is literally the opposite of value. How do you define growth investing at its core? All right. So I'll try to keep this somewhat short because this could be a pretty lengthy answer. But I will say, let's break your questions up into three different segments. So the first segment will be growth and value and how they can converge, meaning growth and value. It shouldn't necessarily be looked at in a binary sense, meaning X is growth, Y is value, and they can't be the same. Because in fact, a lot of the things in the market are overlapping. And then next, we'll break into the actual definition of growth or what I think the definition of growth is. And then finally, maybe let's talk about a slightly different or contrarian view in order to fully answer your question. So the first thing is, is like you mentioned, growth is related to expensive. And it's kind of a pet peeve of mine because growth does not necessarily mean expensive. There's different ways value can converge in the market. So the punchline is basically something that is temporarily expensive today doesn't have to maintain that status. In fact, it can change very significantly. And if you're screening out investing ideas because something doesn't necessarily fit nicely into your value bucket or to your growth bucket, then you're going to miss out on a lot of opportunities. So two different ways, actually, value and growth can converge together to have actual similar meanings, but they start off in different places is that the first example is, let's say you have a stock price that is flat, but earnings are growing faster than expectations. So what that means is your multiples will eventually compress and your valuation will become more attractive. And so this means a certain scenario could be temporarily expensive today, but on a forward-looking basis, maybe over the next 12 to 24 months, that growth metric will become less expensive and it will fit more lines to your value bucket. So food for thought on that example. And then the other examples, what we see is a little bit easier. And this kind of happens because of your loss aversion bias that takes place in the marketplace. And essentially is your earnings are going to maintain their strong growth status. So by growth, I mean 20 or 30%. But due to market correlations, the stock price can increase significantly. So what that means is that 
When the market corrects, your stock will correct, but earnings maintain its strong status. So the multiple compresses and therefore it becomes more like a value-driven name. So you're in a name, it's expensive, it becomes less expensive. And so now you have the argument of, well, is this growth or value? To me, that's not the right argument of what it is or what it's not. I think we should look at growth and value is that instead of them being binary, they could actually go hand in hand in many instances. So that's the first perspective in terms of growth and value converging. Now, what's also interesting, and this will maybe stir up a little bit of ruckus here, is that if you look at some of the best performing stocks ever in the marketplace, from the time they had initial price move to like a topping process, if you look at what their valuation was initially in the beginning, most often, so more than half the time, you'll find that the valuation, let's say valuation driven by, let's say PE to use as a benchmark, becomes significantly higher. It's high in the beginning, but it becomes cheaper. So what you'll see is, for example, if we take a couple of stocks by decade to illustrate this point further, is that in the 1960s, you had Xerox. It sold for originally 100 times the earnings before it went up 3,300% advance. And then later the valuation became much more attractive and et cetera, and it maybe would fit into your, your value bucket after it rose 3,300%. Now, that was in the 60s. So if you go a little bit later to the 70s, you have the Syntax example, you know they had the best product in the marketplace. It was original birth control. And the PE was selling for 50 or 60 time earnings before it tripled. I guess if we want to use a more recent example to kind of wrap everything up, it's the Google example. So Google's PE was, again, like in the 50 or 60 range before the stock price tripled. So my argument that I'm making is, yes, valuation is important, but sometimes having maybe one stock in your portfolio or even two that might temporarily be expensive today will not always be expensive. And ultimately, if we're discussing your portfolio manager, this is what it comes down to. You have to have a differentiated view in the market. If we're all agreeing on what value is or what it will be, then it's hard to generate alpha. So in terms of having a different view, I think that's what I think of growth investing from a valuation standpoint. And I realize I'm taking a long time to answer this, but going into your definition of growth, I like to think of growth in a couple different aspects. So We'll break down growth from a persistence standpoint, from a sustainable standpoint, and from a reoccurring standpoint. We'll look at the different sources of growth. So growth and valuation. By definition, I think growth is going to fall into the 20% category. So 20% earnings, 20% sales, and everything of that nature. Then you're going to get into a persistence category where we're going to analyze growth and make sure it's sustainable. So what that means is you want your growth to be reoccurring, to have sustainable growth patterns, so that way it's predictive in nature. And that way, when you allocate to a stock in your portfolio and you have, let's say, because our portfolios, from my perspective, we tend to have like a year and a half holding period, a 24-month holding period. So if the only way to hold a stock for a year and a half or two years is to be able to have some type of sustainable metric. So if you have sustainable earnings, meaning no negative earning surprises or they're just basically the company's reporting very in line with their earnings metric, it's easier to hold it. And if not, then that creates a lot of different issues. So growth by definition, again, is 20%. We look for a reoccurring growth pattern, sustainable growth patterns. And then we could get into sources of growth, which we talked about a little bit earlier. It's not something that I think of individually. I think of sources of growth in terms of a sector exposure. So for example, certain sectors are more prone to have various or put off various different growth metrics. So the most obvious ones, the retail space, retail companies can grow by M&A standpoint. 
but that's not necessarily organic growth. So you can have big growth numbers for the wrong reason. That's not necessarily something we want to allocate to our portfolios. So organic growth comes down to just having essentially the best product in the marketplace, the most superior product. And if you're able to have that, then you're going to be able to have more predictive reoccurring revenue streams. So we talked about growth and value converging. We talked about the definition of growth. And the last point I'll make is going to be this contrarian viewpoint. So the value camp always likes to use Buffett examples. So I guess we'll play with one of these analogies here. So the value camp from a different contrarian standpoint, we'll use the Buffett toaster example. So Buffett and value says, well, if a stock is $50 today, but it's generally around $40 tomorrow, then that 20% discount, we would prefer to buy that because it's cheaper today not knowing that what's cheaper today can continue to fall in price and can become much cheaper. So that's the value camp. The other end of the spectrum is the growth camp is maybe something is $50 today and assets being priced at $50, but tomorrow it's $60. So generally, why would we pay up a 20% premium? Well, there's a lot of different reasons. So let's discuss potentially one of them. One of them is that a new growth company that is selling for a premium today could be selling at a premium because it has the best product. And the way it has the best product is that, you know, because the last three or four quarters, their earnings are growing 20, 30, 40% in some cases. And they're essentially becoming a product market fit where it's becoming dominated. You see them increasing market share. But in order to get that product to market, they have to have a high SGNA expense. So for example, they're paying out a lot of their profits towards their sales team to sell that product to get it to the market. You saw this in the most obvious and classic example of Apple. Once it becomes a fit to the market, they pull back the SGN expense. If I'm describing a scenario of what Amazon did, then that's pretty much a model that a lot of companies follow. They have the best product, they're paying a lot of overhead, they pull back the expensive, and all of a sudden you have those big growth numbers. So you're paying a slight premium today knowing that that scenario is a possibility. And again, going back to what I originally was saying about that you have to have a differentiated view in the marketplace. Well, a willing to pay a slight premium is a willingness to take risk. And for that, you need to get compensated, right? So that's one of the different examples. Another thing is, is that if the street is expecting your company to only grow at 20% for one or two quarters, but you think it will grow at 20% for the next three or four quarters, then that's going to be a significant mispricing in the market, which will therefore create an inefficiency where you can uh, capitalize on. Now, I don't think this latter analogy falls into the what we discussed earlier, the greater fool's theory where what I pay today, someone will willing to pay me a higher price tomorrow. I think it kind of falls into the category of the momentum anomaly where it's obviously become more prevalent. And again, we've talked about this before, but the value and momentum camp is like this great new thing over the last five to seven years that everyone's talking about. We've kind of had that same framework for the last three or four decades at a minimum of wanting that momentum anomaly on our side. We just overlay it with the growth metric instead of value. So a lot to unpack there. Lots to chew on. And I know for myself as a quant, when we first started talking, my, my head was spinning because it's so unlike my traditional framework. But the more we got talking, the more it did seem like a lot of what you were saying was aligning with frustrations I've had in the past. So we were talking about this dichotomy of growth and value. If you look at every major index provider, whether it's S&P, MSCI, Russell, Crisp, they all do the same thing with growth and value, which is when they define their value indices, it's companies that are cheap by some sort of valuation metric, price to book, price to earnings, 
dividend yield is one of the ones that they use. And then they also simultaneously have to have really bad growth. So often they look at earnings growth, sales forecasts, earnings trends are another common one. And so what you end up with in your value portfolio is almost things that are justified cheap. It's cheap and it's contracting in fundamentals. And then on the growth side, you have not only do things have to be growing, but they have to be expensive. And so you almost get justified expensive. If it's growing, it should be expensive. And so you're not you're not trying to capture any edge there. So the idea that growth and value are opposites of each other doesn't necessarily make sense to me. In preparing for this podcast, I actually found one piece of literature that showed that growth as a quote unquote factor might work. It was actually from MSCI. And what they showed was if you just took sort of basic, really simple growth screens, it was a disaster. But if you controlled for these different variables, all of a sudden it became a really impressive factor. And I I think that's probably what we'll get into as we get going. You started to go down this road though, and I I think I want to back up a little bit. You started to go down this road. Often when we think of a premium in the market outperforming the market, we ask, where do we think this is going to come from? So it might be a risk premium. And you sort of mentioned that maybe you're bearing a risk that the market's going to pay you to bear. It might be a behavioral anomaly that you're exploiting, or it might be sort of a different type of framework. And this is sort of the Mobison framework of you've got better information. You have an analytical edge. You might have some sort of behavioral edge. Maybe it's a structural edge. There's someone in the market that just has a different utility function than you that you can exploit. When you look at growth, where do you think the edge is coming from? Right. Yeah. So there's a lot to answer in that framework, right? Because you have your informational, your analytical, your emotional, structural, et cetera. So I guess before I get into that, let's go over two quick analogies to set the tone of where these various sources of edge can come from. And then we'll package it up together of how we actually capitalize on that. So the first thing of What's an edge in the marketplace and how do you define it? And and then more importantly, how do you capture that? The first thing is that being a discretionary portfolio manager and capitalizing on these inefficiencies in the market is very, very difficult. So you have to have a process in place to be able to do that, which I'll touch on in a second. So what I like to say is being a discretionary PM is like climbing Mount Everest. If you are able to do it, but if you can, it has a big payoff. So you're taking an asymmetrical bet on your life and in your career. Now, another layer on top of that analogy is that in a different sense, a discretionary portfolio manager is more like being a startup founder in Silicon Valley, where you know the odds are against you that most of them fail, but the ones that do succeed are very successful. And in terms of like an absolute dollar amount, it's very meaningful, right? What's also interesting before we get into these edges is that some of us are genetically predisposed of wanting to accomplish this impossible. So knowing that it is possible, what are some of the ways that we could get the edge? So the way I think of the general framework of how to get an edge in the marketplace is I like to start with what's the best and how did they accomplish that? And then work back from there and see generally if my strategy matches or if it's in line with that. So quickly... Some of the best investors in the marketplace, like Stanley Druckenmiller, George Soros, Paul Tudor Jones, William O'Neill, how do they achieve these big 20 to 30% KGARs? Well, pretty much if you dissect these turns, which you know, I've spent pretty much endless amount of hours doing, is that they're able to capitalize on the markets that are conducive towards their strategies and sit out the markets that are not. So they're very hyper aware of that. And I'll touch on the quantitative metrics to make you more aware of that briefly. But essentially what that means is that they're able to swing out the fat pitches in the marketplace and then to sit out the ones that aren't. Now, realistically, in order to do that, you have to have an incredible amount of patience 
But more importantly, your capital base, your investors have to have even more patience because that means you're going to have some periods where you're doing well and some periods where you're not. So to put this into perspective, if we break down the edge returns over 10 years, if we just take a random 10-year sampling period, what this means is that let's say half the time, so 50% or five years out of those 10 years, you're going to have inline market returns. Three years, you'll have a 0% return, meaning you're flat versus the market. So usually in these type of markets, the market is negative. It's having a drawdown. So the market could be down 5 10 or 15%, but you're at flat or you're at a 0% return. So on a relative basis, you're outperforming. And then again, these investors, in order to achieve those big uh, KGARs is one to two years out of every 10 years, they have really, really big years, meaning they're up 50 or 60 or 70%. And I know on the surface, that seems a little bit ridiculous, but it's not when we get into some of these things of how to implement it. Something that I was able to do and take advantage of a couple of times now, it's following this framework, knowing that some of the greats can do it and it's available to us in the marketplace. The way to actually get there now to get those returns is by going through some of these edges. So I know that was a little bit long to set the tone of like how these edges are possible, but they are possible. I gave some of the reasons why or some examples. Now we'll get into definitively what are the sources of those edges. So I think the source of the edge from a discretionary standpoint basically all starts with a process, the investment process. It needs to, one, to be able to produce alpha. It needs to be sustainable, and it has to be something that you can follow in a consistent manner. Now, for me, I like to take this philosophy and apply it to life in general, not just the market, because I think if you're able to have a process, something that's sustainable and repeatable, then you're able to do well. And then just frankly, I think the days of being a discretionary PM where you have this willy-nilly process that it's not exactly concrete and you can't back it up with empirical data, that's over with. No one's willing to pay for that. Moving forward, I think that will continue to go along the same path. So as Bill would say, in terms of the process, you would always hear him say in the office, rules, rules, rules. And what does that come down to? It comes down to a process. So Corey, I know when we've talked in the past and I've gone over some of personal strategies I follow, you said, you know, this is more or less a quant strategy and you're just deviating slightly from the weights when you think it's worth taking those idiosyncratic risks. And my framework is, yeah, I don't know like why it should be classified as entirely growth. If anything, our strategies these days are more like, I don't like to use the word quantum mental, but that's kind of what they fit into. An example of this or another analogy is that it's the fighter pilot analogy. So we know that before a fighter pilot goes to take off, he goes through a list of checks and procedures to make sure everything is running correctly before they take off. And it's something that they do every single time, day in and day out. And what that allows them to do is to be able to have something that's consistent, that they know that works, that is able to accomplish their mission or their job. The same thing can be applied in the marketplace. So we're just taking it maybe a little bit further with some of these things that we do. So now the sources of edge. <laughs> you mentioned uh, the Bates approach, right? Michael Mobison, he does a terrific job on this. So I'm not going to try to elaborate anything that I could say that he hasn't. He's done a terrific job, so I'm not going to be able to touch on all those factors, but maybe I'll touch up on one or two factors that I think where you could significantly get an edge in the marketplace. The first one, probably arguably the most important, is the behavioral aspect. Now, there's a ton of research out there that shows that behaviorally, there's a lot of things that goes on in the marketplace. One of my favorite papers to illustrate a really fun and interesting point is that it's the genetics of the investment biases. Essentially, Siegel and another author were able to say that even though all of us are predisposed to all of these investment different biases, 
some of us are more predisposed to certain factors than others. And what they illustrate this point is that they have two identical twins that given in the same environment, living conditions, et cetera, have entirely different investing results simply because of the predisposed experiences they have, meaning like individually and idiosyncratically experiences, and that was able to produce significantly different investing outcomes. Now, just simply, if that could happen to identical twins, imagine the dispersion you could get between managers. I think also when you see behaviorally, some investors are just more prone to be more like quant. Some are meant to be more discretionary. Some of them shouldn't even be investors. So if you're trying to be a discretionary manager, but you have a hard time following processes, you're just setting your setup to failure. So it's something I think genetically, you have to have something that's there and that's available for you. And I guess outside the behavioral aspect, if you think of the informational aspect, again, quickly, just off the top of my head here, pre-reg FT, yeah, sure. I think there are sources of edge informationally. Post-reg FT, I think you could see this in many different examples that informational edge is pretty much, it's gone. I'm not going to say it's gone entirely away, but it's definitely has decreased significantly because most of us are using the same information. And I think almost all of us are using the same tools so that doesn't seem like an area that you want to compete in, frankly. If you look at information ratios over portfolio, especially how they diverge over time, I think you could kind of see this. I think generally you want to have an IR in a portfolio that's net positives because it does lead to that you have some type of edge, but it doesn't necessarily have to mean it's informationally. I think a big one that I'm starting to realize more as I get deeper and deeper into my career is the structural aspect. So I'll deviate slightly from the Bates approach from a structural standpoint, and I'll go into the inference structure. And I'll just say this, the infrastructure of what you do and what firm you're at is very, very important because it's going to tell you if you're able to scale your ideas or not. So again, the punchline, it's very important. You need the ability to be able to go to the marketplace, have a hypothesis, go and test it to see if it's significant or not, have a reiteration process that you're able to do quickly and efficiently. Now, with this process, there is a big financial cost that goes into this. Corey, I'm sure you see it all the time. And more so being involved with this directly myself, there's a big time element involved. In fact, I think recently, which really hit home for me is when I was reading one of the OSAM papers or tweets or something along those lines, they mentioned a research graveyard. And I just resonate really well with that because I think of any good research process, and again, ours has been going on for about 50 years now, you have to have a very deep research graveyard and it's just frankly expensive. So from an edge, yeah, infrastructure is very important. And I guess the last one to touch up and wrap up the whole Bates uh, sources of edge is that, so for forecasting error, there's a lot that goes on to it when you're forecasting or predicting a stock. So I think Philip Tetlock has done some of the best work on this in terms of forecasting. Again, the punchline for this will be, it's very difficult, if not mostly impossible. So you want to be careful with how you make predictions, I would actually say there's a big difference in predictions versus interpreting the data that you have. So from being a discretionary portfolio manager, you want to be able to interpret the data and be reactionary underneath it in terms of like a Bayesian sense versus forecasting too far out in the future and just extrapolating what's good today will be good in the future because that's not how things unfold. Again, I know that's a lot for the sources of edges, but I just wanted to make sure I touched upon some of them. One of the things you touched upon there that definitely resonates with me, I mean, talking about the OSAM research graveyard, is the institutional legacy. And I start to see that now. We've only been in business for a little more than a decade, but I can start to see a little bit of a snowball effect of saying, no, I've done research in this area. 
or there's an idea that creates some lateral benefit in another portfolio. And you can see the benefits accumulate over time. But I would say the vast majority of things you research end up in the graveyard, as they should. Markets are pretty efficient. And if all these ideas were working, we'd all be ultra wealthy. So starting with the null hypothesis that the market's efficient, you would expect that the vast, vast, vast majority of your ideas should end up in the graveyard, which is depressing, but it, it speaks to your point. There's a huge time element in being successful here. Talking about the legacy of a firm, though, we've mentioned William O'Neill's name a couple of times. You work for the family office managing money. William O'Neill, for for the listeners, maybe you can give a little bit of background on him. For those who are at least remotely familiar, or if they're not familiar with the name, they might be familiar with, for example, IBD, or they might be familiar with the whole CanSlim methodology. So maybe you can give a little background on William, his sort of investing thesis, and how much of that lives on. Because I think he, that original Canceling idea was published in like the 1950s, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe you can talk a little bit about how that legacy lives on through the firm. Right. So this one will not be as long of a rant, and it'll be a little bit more fun. Yeah, essentially, William O'Neill, I've said this, we've been in business for over 50 years. He originally started off being the youngest person to purchase a seat on the exchange, and he put a couple of million dollars into R&D making these growth models back in the 60s. So if you use present value terms, that's pretty significant. And there's something to be said about having a four-decade head start in the marketplace. So answering your question of what were the growth metrics that he originally invented and what do we use today? I will say this, like any good research process is going to involve or evolve rather. And that's what we do at William O'Neill's. We always try to make sure the process is continuing to better itself. So at its core, he's most famous for CanSlim, right? That's original growth models. And I would say a lot of investors kind of misinterpret it because they think it's just an acronym and it's a way of how to invest. I would say incorrect. It's a way to perhaps select stocks, but you want to think of the CanSlim metric and the growth models that were originally published four decades ago as being the foundation of like a good growth strategy. So a foundation, meaning as in like a foundation of a house. So let's use a physical example. For every house, you have a foundation of flooring, which we'll call it CanSlim. And then you'll have a roof, plumbing, electricity. So there's a lot that goes into the house besides just the floor, the foundation. Same thing with the growth models of what I use today. It's a lot more than just an acronym. Most importantly, the portfolio construction process, how to optimize a portfolio. And I know we have a couple of questions that hopefully we'll get into in terms of what those metrics exactly are in today's day and age, and maybe why do they change and how we optimize them. So I'll touch up on that in a second. For the listeners that don't know, can you actually say what CanSlim is? Right. So CanSlim is a growth model that we follow of how to select stocks. So it starts off with like current earnings. You want current earnings of being 20%, annual earnings around 20, 25%. Most importantly in the acronym is the N, and that stands for a new product and innovation. What's interesting is that we've mentioned that the CanSlim has started around in the 60s. One of the letterings is, is the N, and I think it's one of the most important. It's a new product, a new innovation. I know of some research, some controversy research has been, controversial research has been published on this recently, where you have the school of thought from the HBS camp, the Porter Five Forces, where you have all these different bargaining powers, et cetera. And then you have the paper that's published on from the Chicago Booth Camp that says, that's not exactly true. Let's quantify this. And we'll show that basically 
the most significant determining factor is who has the most superior product. Because if you have that, then everything else falls in place. And that's kind of what we figured out as well. It's just a little bit longer ago. And then you get into a market direction. So there is a slight market timing model to it. So originally I said, what's interesting in the last five to seven years, you have value and momentum becoming a thing, meaning the value camp said, hey, we generally want to be in things that are attractive prices, but we don't want them to continue to fall in price. So maybe if they're in an uptrend, that will produce a, some type of higher expected return and we'll capture a premium for that. And it's true. It holds well in the marketplace. It's been tested. And so our market timing component just essentially does the same thing. But with growth, it's that we generally want to own growth companies and uptrends and not downtrends because um, it produces a, a higher expected return. And we test this historically. It's a significant factor. So generally, I guess in a holistic, quick manner, that is what uh, CanSlim is. And that market timing aspect is something I want to touch on in a little bit, because I do think it's a really interesting part of what you do as a discretionary manager, which is you don't have to be fully invested. In fact, you are very willing to wait for your pitches and sit out the market. But to touch on your point, your value example there, I know DFA, for example, they added in subtle momentum timing. They obviously didn't want to admit that momentum was a factor, but they'll say, well, you know what, we're going to defer the purchase of value stocks until it no longer has really negative momentum. Or on the other side, they won't sell something just because it's gotten more expensive out of the minor bands. They'll extend that band. In doing so, they've helped eliminate a lot of the negative momentum factor of what they do, which has helped them reduce drag in the portfolio versus the market. So trying to build a portfolio that accounts for those, making sure you're not buying into a negative factor is important. We'll talk about that. Where I want to start, and this is something you mentioned a little bit with the new products idea, and you mentioned a little bit earlier, the idea of growth investing in sort of broader themes. When you think about building a portfolio, how much of growth investing to you is in the name, in a single security, and getting that security call correct, versus how much of it is just being in the right theme. Could people build a growth portfolio with all these thematic ETFs that are coming out nowadays? Okay. So I answer that question in two parts, not three, but two. <laughs> we'll keep it short. So yeah, let's look at this unbiasedly. What does the data say? So if you look at the data, our original studies show that about half, so meaning 50% of a stock's move is directly correlated to its industry group. And I'll define that a little bit more clearly or in depth. So I prefer to look at the general sectors and generally a firm does is not the overall sectors. We've been collecting data for a long time, so we're able to parse this in many different ways. One of the interesting ways that we look at this data is that we take the general sectors and we break them down into about 200 different industry groups. So what that allows us to do is simply is just knowing where the strength and where the weakness is occurring. Where's the good, where's the bad at any given moment. And when we study this over the last couple of decades and you know a further look back period, it shows you that, again, half of a stock's move is tied or directly correlated to the industry group. How often do you have to revisit those industry groups? Because it seems to me like almost a new industry can be coming out all the time. So I think the industry groups, now this is where it's going to get fun. I think those industry groups come down to like product cycles in that. I don't think we should think of industry groups as necessarily in terms of like themes. Industry groups, we could think of tech, but what's within tech? Well, we have software. Well, we have software that was originally physical and in terms of like selling seats and then it become software as a service and then platform as a service. So that's how we further break it down. And then what I will say is in terms of answering your question definitively of how to construct a portfolio based off of knowing these metrics is that 
it actually makes it a little bit easier because what that means is generally you don't have to pick the absolute winner in a stock knowing that if you could just land in the right themes or allocate towards the right themes that you'll generally have a higher expected return versus not. And then what we try to do is we try to use a traditional bottom-up fundamental research effort to narrow down those themes to therefore pick some of the best securities. But usually if you could land in some of the best performing industry groups, you will be able to have a higher expected return. So let's talk about some of that picking individual securities aspect of it. Because again, I know in talking to you in the past, this is not a, it is bottom up fundamental, but it is very quant driven from my perspective. And one of the things that really shocked me the last time we got together is we were talking about the characteristics that call the universe down from call it 3000 securities or 7000 securities or whatever you want to call your big wide world. And you said, well, Actually, once we sort of apply our initial screens, it's more like, I think it was like 50 stocks that you can ever really look at, which I thought was really fascinating. So maybe you can talk a little bit about those initial screens and the constraints that you face in trying to deploy capital. And then from there, once you get that universe called down to a pond you can fish in, what are some of the sort of metrics and characteristics you are looking for at any given time and trying to pick a security, you know, what makes a good candidate? So I think in terms of like the listeners right now, this is probably going to be one of the most interesting aspects because this is getting into the skin of the game part of what we do. So if we just use an example of the U.S. domestic markets, we start with the screening process of about 7,000 unique securities. Once we overlay our growth models, it gets narrowed down very significantly, like you mentioned. So let's define some of those metrics. First is that a general rule of thumb, the definition going back to growth is that you want to have about 20% increase in earnings, 20% increase in sales, and a little bit lower than 20% for your margins, like your return on equity. And then you want to see an acceleration in these numbers. Most significantly, it needs to be weighted in the most two recent quarters. We could get into why that is, and then perhaps maybe that's more of a momentum fact versus like a fundamental fact or et cetera. But that's something that we generally look for. And then we look for margin expansion. So just with those factors alone, if you narrow down the database, start from 7,000, any given time period, you probably end up with less than about 100 stocks. But then it gets reduced significantly when we add in liquidity factors. So everyone has different liquidity parameters and risk tolerances that they're able to deal with. I will maybe give an example of what's available in the marketplace and then how I'm able to kind of navigate with it. Because the liquidity aspect, the more I get involved with being a portfolio manager, the more I realize it's one of the most significant factors. Because you could have a really great idea that you're able to find. It's just, it's very illiquid. It's tough because then you're getting a premium for bearing the liquidity risk that you're not necessarily wanting in your portfolio, especially your capital allocators. And if it takes you a long time to put on an exit of position, that creates a lot of other different uh, metrics. So the quarterly aspect, generally, I use a parameter of having a company that trades $100 million a day. So the average daily dollar volume needs to be about $100 million. Now, you could deviate from that if it's kind of like the preferred habitat theory and maybe fixed income. You're going to stay in your preferred habitat, but if you get a premium outside of that, then you will deviate. So I like to think of that of like the $100 million benchmark of what I like to navigate in. So out of the 7,000 unique stocks in the domestic database, about 500 companies trade more than $100 million a day. It's not a lot. If you narrow it down further, about 175 companies trade more than $250 million a day. And then 75 companies generally trade a half a billion and only 25 companies, it's actually 24, trade over a billion dollars a day. I mean, like, 
creates another subject. I won't deviate too far, but in terms of looking at proxies of markets and all these different things, it's would you rather look at the Dow or would you rather look at 25 or 30 stocks that trade a billion dollars? That would probably give you a good indication of what the market is doing. So back on track, I use $100 million on a daily average dollar volume and the rule of thumb is really simple. For risk parameters, if you want to be 5% or maybe say a little bit more aggressive, 10% of the average daily dollar volume, that's only $10 million building a position. It's a very small, insignificant amount. And then knowing it might take you 15, 20, 25 days to establish that position, that's kind of where you get these numbers from. It's from a risk framework. Now, outside of that, what's a really interesting one that I know has a lot of edge in it, it's one that I use a lot, is the institutional sponsorship that we talked about. And it's something that doesn't get a lot of talk for whatever reason, but it's something that's very prevalent. So institutional sponsorship, what I mean is, one, how many mutual funds and how many long short funds are in your stock, and then two, the quality of them. So we rate these funds on a ton of different metrics, but basically we know what are good funds, meaning higher returns, what are bad funds, meaning don't produce any returns or don't outperform the market. So generally we know whether the good funds are buying our stock, the higher rated funds, and then to further analyze that, we know typically these set group of long-only mutual funds, if they tend to establish a position and they have a multi-year time horizon and they follow similar growth models in us, and we see through public filings that if they establish a position, that generally that liquidity is on our side. And more often than not, these funds are going to continue to buy. One way to reconfirm this is that if the next quarter updated, they've added to their position. So now all of a sudden we have our fund with money in the stock, a couple of other funds with it. And then now we might have a handful of the really big, large mutual funds on the stock. That helps with the conviction building process because some of these growth names can be volatile. And if you know your stock is down maybe 10 or 15% and a couple of week time frame that, hey, Fidelity Contra Fund has $110 billion in a single growth equity strategy, they're going to step in and allocate to the position because they're just not, frankly, buying at highs. Well, and that's something I want to touch on a little bit later as we go down the rabbit hole of your process, because I know that's part of your risk management thinking. But that was definitely, when you first mentioned that to me, different than I think a lot, what a lot of people say. I think a lot of the value guys at the more niche firms tend to prefer underfollowed companies because they say, well, that's where you can get a real discrepancy in market view and you can think differently and maybe really find value. You actually almost go a little bit the other way from a risk management, liquidity management perspective that you can build more conviction if uh, funds out there that are good performing funds are acquiring your security it can be a, a positive sign for you, which I think is pretty interesting. I want to talk a little bit about, go back to something you mentioned earlier, which was the sectors, the industries, the themes. One of the critiques that often comes up with like very naive value strategies, for example, is that the same metric doesn't apply across different industries. So enterprise value to EBITDA, for example, that's like a cash flow metric that's more capital structure neutral, but can't necessarily be applied across different companies that have different CapEx needs. When you think of applying these different metrics across different industries, do you have to think about reweighting them for particular industries? Like, do you think about, oh, this is a really asset heavy growth industry? This is a really asset light growth industry. How do you think about characterizing that? So, yes, you're going to want to weight them according to the industry that you're in. So, if you're involved or allocating or looking at maybe a tech company, a recent example software company, the 20% growth margins are going to be pretty light. Why? Because almost all of them 
them have like 80% growth margins. Now, the other end of the spectrum, if you're looking at maybe like a telecom provider or a retail company, their margins aren't going to be nearly as high. Their earnings aren't going to be growing nearly as fast just by the dynamics of the market. And so you need to have a proportional weighting system in place for that. So generally, I mentioned the 20% numbers just to simplify it, but you want to have those in relation to the certain industry group. So the punchline is the more, I guess, risk and growth oriented the industry group is, then the higher the benchmark becomes. And then the lower the risk and growth is, the lower the benchmark becomes. So we have a framework to work around, but we use adjustment factors. So I want to get into the nitty gritty of your portfolio now a little bit. One of the things that I've always sort of believed differentiates quant managers and discretionary managers is the way we manage risk. So quant managers tend to not know what's in their portfolio, and we tend to think that's a positive thing. We don't sort of get fall in love with our positions. But we manage risk through diversification. We tend to hold a broader basket of securities, and our metrics might be a little bit more obtuse, but hopefully sort of the incorrect positions are getting canceled out. I know you hold it like an incredibly concentrated portfolio, five to 10 names type of portfolio, and you watch them like a hawk. How do you think about position sizing? How do you think about building that portfolio that is so heavily concentrated. All right. So my favorite part of this discussion by far, and hopefully one of my last metaphors I'll provide for today. So position sizing and concentration within a portfolio, it's something that I think about every single day. And it's something that I think have thought about every single day for pretty much the last decade is positioning towards theme. And I'll get into the reasons why. Basically, if I get a chance to talk to any significant investor in the marketplace, first question I ask them is, how do you position towards a certain thing? What about carrying values, notational values? What about sector weights? How do you deviate from that, et cetera? So hopefully I'll be able to answer some of those questions. To set the tone, I will say the appropriate position size and concentration in a portfolio is like wearing the correct fitting pair of running shoes in a marathon. If it's too big or if it's too small, you're not going to be able to complete the race. But if you have just the right running shoes, just the right size, you might be able to finish the race. So translate that into the portfolio. If it's too large, if your position size is too large or too small, you're not going to be able to finish the race. So you need to have an optimal position size. Now, to get away from that, and I'll get into the metrics of how to optimize it. I have to say that that might be the hokiest metaphor you've given so far today. Yeah, I have a lot of these things that translate. It's just how we look at or how I'll be able to simplify a lot of this stuff. So what we do know is that being a discretionary portfolio manager, how are we compensated? How are we incentivized? Well, by definition, I get paid if I have a return higher than the market, right? My alpha. So in order to do that, it's very difficult to have a ton of stocks in your portfolio. We're not a mutual fund. We're not going to carry 100 to 200 stocks, which essentially you become correlated to the market and you are the market. You need to have a low number of stocks. And there's a ton of research on this. Generally, less than 30 is fine. From all of the data that we have looked at on empirical basis, generally a 10 stock portfolio is fine. And this is with basically any dollar amount that you could come up with. So when I say I have a 10 stock portfolio or even a six stock portfolio, immediately a lot of my value friends immediately say too risky, you're taking way too much risk. The concentration is not necessary to produce the highest return. And I say, okay, well, you know what's interesting? This Buffett guy, he has half of a trillion dollars or a couple hundred billion allocated to the market. He has 80% of his portfolio is allocated in 10 ideas. 62% is allocated in the top five, and he has a single position with a 22% weight. 
That's pretty much what we do. So why is that not risky? And but what maybe a growth manager does is risky. And then the counter argument is, oh, well, in that sense, maybe we could start to see why. So what I will say is that one of the biggest sins in investing is having your biggest position being your smallest percentage of equity. So you want to be able to combat that. And some of the ways that we could get into having like an optimal position size are going to be the quantitative metrics. So a rule of thumb for individual position sizing is it's generally okay to start with the Kelly criteria. So you start with that. It's going to be based off your window loss hit ratios. Like for example, if your batting average is really high, fortunately mine is recently. So it says I need a 40% position size. Obviously that's ridiculous by our standards. Use some adjustment factors. Now there's a lot of different ways you could use adjustment factors. Some people just use half of it. I like to be a little bit more quantitative in that and use a series of like checklists almost. And so that way I have, let's say if my my starting position size generally 15%, which is kind of most often it is, I'm not going to deviate too far from that. If all of the things line up, I might go to a 17% or I might go to a 13%. And what's something like that's on that checklist that would make you go up or down? There's a series of quantitative attributes and there's a series of qualitative attributes. So the quantitative attributes is the more strong it is fundamentally, and there's a ton of different fundamental variables, that the higher ranking it will get. And then that overlaid or weighted with a Kelly formula will tell me to deviate slightly to the upside, meaning I'm able to take more or I should take more risk based off all these factors. From a qualitative standpoint, what I like to think about is what's the reality of the current conditions? Well, if my portfolio is up 20% of the year, I'm only 70% invested, meaning I have a lot of capital to deploy. I have the ability to take on a little bit more of a a higher position size because my portfolio is doing well. I have that risk. So you have the quant metrics in terms of like the Kelly sizing, and then you have some of these qualitative attributes to change it. Now, that's for individual position sizes starting. And there's a lot more that goes on to it besides starting. Throughout the position, I mentioned an optimal holding period for us based off of all of our model books is around 15 months. So your position size is going to deviate from your starting amount based off your carrying value and rotational value. Can you go into that, that 15 months where, where's that come from and how's that sort of tied back to the ideas of growth? So that comes from our internal model book studies. And it's actually one of the things we're pretty popular for from like on the buy side, at least I, I remember when I was starting out in the business, just ironically, the fund purchased these models originally in like the late 70s from our group. And I didn't know it at the time until six months later. And they were saying, oh, yeah, those things are great. They give you a good benchmark of what is realistic, what is not. Going back to the Michael Mobison example with his expectations framework is that you have this general benchmark of what you think is possible, and then you see what the reality is, and then you kind of adjust your weights accordingly. So we know through empirical data that internal studies that we've done, that generally, if a stock fits our characteristic, it's going to go on for about 15 months. And then we have time periods based off certain other factors that they'll go on for 24 months, meaning by the time you enter this position, it should continue on for two years. And this is based off a lot of different factors. And then what I was just saying before that was that knowing that your position size is going to deviate from that based off its carrying value, I will say it's something you have to get more aware of as the size becomes larger in your portfolios, like the actual dollar amounts. Because all of a sudden, let's say if you start, let's use a recency example that the last two years in the market space, software has been doing really well. You have two 20% positions in software. Well, all of a sudden, that's 40% of your portfolio, but based off the carrying value, it's doing well, it's over half your equity in software. 
well, you need to trim that back. You need to take off some of that exposure because, you know, maybe in certain environments it's okay, but most of it it's not. So you need to be aware of what your carrying value is and what are some of the factors to reduce that carrying value, which I'll touch upon because I think those are really interesting. And then another point I will make based off the position size is, look, we're in a day and age that we want to use all these different quantitative metrics of how to narrow down everything. And I probably use them, let's just say I use them a lot. So something that's different, I will say, is knowing what type of market you're in. And you have to kind of be in tune with this through, again, a series of checklists. But for example, having a 10 stock portfolio in some markets might be okay, but having a five stock portfolio in certain markets would be okay. So easy examples that, you know, recently I hate it, but it's like the FANG was doing really well. Well, you can make a strong argument of being correlated to just a couple of names and having a very high expected return. Well, that just doesn't exist the last couple of years. And if you check every market, there's different scenarios that will tell you to have maybe five stock or 10 stock portfolio. So a recent example that was a very concentrated portfolio was that in 2004 to 2006, you had the Apple Google market. You could have half of your equity, these two very stocks, and your expected return relative to the risk that you're taking is still very, very high. And maybe 2019, this recent year, we've had in the first half of it, Maybe not today, but the first half of it, we've had a lot of different industry groups. So doing well, so it doesn't make sense to have a three-stock portfolio. It makes sense to perhaps have a 10-stock portfolio. So different environments will tell you what to allocate towards. So because you brought it up, I want to talk about FANG for a second, because I think that might be one of those cliche anchors of, this is growth. This is what I imagine a growth manager does. They just buy FANG stocks all day long. And I know that's not true in talking to you. How do you differentiate growth from just, hey, I'm going to go buy Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google? It goes about what the model is. And just frankly, a lot of those valuations are very, very, very high today. So they're not going to fit those models. So they're not going to be in the portfolios. But what I will say is that Building a portfolio might be, maybe to use an easier example, I won't get into these crazy metaphors, but it's like playing golf. You can't have a perfect round of golf, but you could try really hard to. So building a portfolio, it's not going to be perfect. If you know what is acceptable to take in terms of risk and what is not. Now, if you want to deviate from that, you have to have you know a series of events that leads to that. So for example, let's say you have a 70% growth oriented portfolio that fits exactly towards your models. But based off certain conditions, you notice that these certain groups or these certain stocks, like the FANG group, is doing well. Well, if one of those stocks fits into the portfolio in terms of a context, that where you could look at the portfolio holistically and say it still matches the growth portfolio, then I think you're still being true to your mandate and having that total portfolio context where it's still a growth and still fits a growthy model. The reality is, though, if you add in one of those stocks in your portfolio, it throws off a lot of the other metrics. So all of a sudden your beta is higher, your volatility is higher, the valuation metrics are high. So now you need to have something that's counter in that. So you're allocating towards a main that has lower growth, low beta to reduce the volatility in your portfolio. So it sounds good in theory. It's just hard to implement. And I guess the punchline is it's acceptable, but as long as it's fitting into relation of the total portfolio context. One of the things I just realized we I don't think we've talked about it all. So we mentioned your PM at the William O'Neill Group, and we talked about this hyper-concentrated portfolio. We should mention for listeners that you are not the only PM and that there is capital spread among multiple of you. So you might all have very concentrated portfolios, but it's not like the 
entire William O'Neill group is tied up in five names at a given time. Yeah. So for disclosure purposes, that makes a lot of sense, right? So no, we allocate on a global basis. So there's tens of thousands of equities in our database to choose from. We have a discretionary team that only does discretionary management. We have a quant team that only runs algos. Then collectively, we have an absolute return strategy that we use on an internal basis. Some of our portfolios do take on a lot of risk, but it's like you said, everything pretty much has to be right in order to have these elevated risk levels. And the reality is, is when they stop working, we pull back very quickly. It's one of the things they're able to do. It's part of the strategy. It's part of the edge is being able to set out the markets. And just having past conversations with you, I mentioned something that I think maybe you perhaps thought that was a little bit interesting was that I mentioned I studied the way people blow up, portfolios blow up. Well, this is where I wanted to go because I wanted to eventually get into risk okay, management. Okay, so okay. go ahead. No, I'll just say the portfolio blow up thing. So What's the number one rule in investing? Capital preservation. Well, how do you preserve capital? By not blowing up. Well, what leads to a blow up, right? Study long-term capital management, all these different funds. Maybe Ackman or Einhorn ran into trouble from time periods. How do they get into those time periods? And yeah, I guess I worth stealing a little bit of thunder from the other segment, but it's about leverage. So using too much leverage and it's about a behavioral aspect. It's a Bates thing. It's not admitting when you're wrong. So all of your quant metrics will tell you that you're wrong, but you deviate from that. And that's when you start to get into trouble. So you have to be very objective in what you do. And that's why I use a fighter pilot analogy, a series of checklists, because if you have all these different things that says, hey, you should pull back the position and you still don't, well, that's really on you. And you shouldn't be using that as your process. So let's keep talking about risk management. Maybe talk about some of the considerations you think about on the risk management side before buying a security. So like you mentioned one already, that whole concept of institutional buyers being in the security or starting to acquire. And then maybe think about, maybe you can chat about sort of risk management after a security has been bought. What happens when a position does start to go against you? How do you handle that sort of thing? Whether we're buying it before or after the fact, I think when you think of risk, you have to think of it in terms of one, a framework, and then two, a system. So a framework with a specific metrics that you're going to be accountable to, like the hedge fund space, max drawdown. So you do that in different various simulations over various events. And then a system as in, if X happens, then I will do Y. Or if this certain event happens, then this is how we'll react to it. So certain scenarios are going to be able to create an elevated risk tolerance level where you're able to take that risk. And some scenarios are going to be able to where you're not going to be able to afford to take that risk. So the framework, let's break the framework down into a qualitative stance and a quantitative stance. So from the quant framework perspective, there's a ton of them. Maybe I'll just add value towards a couple of them. One of them is total portfolio exposure. What I will say that's interesting, and I know this is going to go against the grain in terms of what the quant world says, but a lot of the research you know, I've been reading recently is saying, well, one of the best ways to optimize portfolio results in terms of achieving a higher expected return is that let's lever up portfolio instead of having these individual stock bets. And okay, I'm not disagreeing with that, but just in practice, that's very difficult to implement. And I'll tell you why. Because if you have a levered up portfolio and a handful of names, or let's say even 10 names, the volatility of that portfolio is going to be very high. And going back to the running shoe analogy, it's going to be difficult to hold. And if you can't hold it, then there's no point. So from that perspective, there's different ways, I guess you could combat it. So one of the ways you could combat it is that instead of levering up an entire portfolio, maybe lever up a couple of names. So maybe have a 15% position size or a 20% position size. And what oftentimes I find in practice, so again, skin in the game stance, is that if we're able to I do well with having a levered up idea, one idea versus having a portfolio that's, 
using leverage in general. In terms of various risk metrics, you're able to just control it better. It's more predictable. And you know you're not going to be as correlated to the market. So that's what you want. You have the same expected return, but less correlated to the market. And the volatility by those names is actually less because you're not having the entire portfolio related to the market. So from a total portfolio perspective on exposure, that's where I think my value add will be different and my differentiated view will be from that. Then from once you narrow down the total portfolio exposure, we'll think about sector exposure. So I already mentioned it, I won't harp on it too much, but basically sector exposure, you need to be hyper aware of how much exposure and risk you have related to groups, because all of a sudden, if you're in earnings season, which I'll touch upon in a second, if your software names are not performing well, then all of a sudden you're out of favor. Now you're out of tune. Now you're having to rebalance your portfolio. And do you care about sectors relative to the market, or are you just talking about absolute exposure in your portfolio? Well, I mean, it's both. In terms of, I'm trying to not answer this question in 10 different ways. So on a relative standpoint, yes, you want to be in the best names relative to what's going on, but also there's certain time periods just in an absolute sense that, hey, these names are the best right now, or these groups are the best for various fundamental reasons. It sort of persists like this. So even if the market's deviating from this, it doesn't matter. These are names that's that we have and our conviction's very high in it because you know empirically when we've implemented this strategy over the last four or five decades, it's produced an expected return. So from the quant framework perspective in terms of risk, I've touched on a total portfolio exposure, sector exposure. What I will say I think about a little bit more often these days is beta in relation to the portfolio. And I won't say a beta weight the portfolio, but I'm beta aware. And it's based off, again, the series of checklists. So low beta versus high beta stock. Generally, holistically, you do not want to have a high beta portfolio um, for various reasons. Which I think, just saying, like that, that was another thing that caught me very much off guard. When you think of growth names, you typically think high beta. And you said to me very explicitly in the past, like you're not looking for high beta names necessarily. Yeah. So my favorite screens are low beta. We have this one proprietary metric that goes off our earnings consistency. It takes the various reoccurring, it dissects like the income statement balance sheet, all this. It tells you based off the metrics that we've tested to prove significance, how reoccurring some of these things are, how or not how it deviates from what the management is saying versus what actually happens. And then it weights it versus what the expectations are in the street. So it gives you this metric and I screen off of that. It tells us how consistently this stock potentially could be with their earnings results. And it's one of my favorite metrics I use, but essentially I'm looking at low beta, low valuation, very high percents in the earnings growth and an industry group that is relatively performing well. So that doesn't match in line with the high beta, high expensive. It almost sounds like a turnaround in many ways. So if you look at our models, about one out of every four stocks is a turnaround story. So I know the preconceived notion on growth is that this high fire, high beta name that is going to be a fad versus a growth name. In fact, we're sometimes, I guess that perhaps is the case, but that's not something you're allocating more than one stock to your portfolio. Uh, again, going back to one out of the four scenarios that there's going to be a turnaround scenario. So I know, you know, some of the retailers have done that recently where the last couple of years, they went through a big drawdown and all of a sudden they're starting to come back. So then earnings from a negative basis is going from negative to positive. It's you're capturing that 20% growth metric there, and then they will fall into the bucket of the growth category to where you can consider them as investment ideas. So yeah, I'm beta aware. If I am allocating, maybe let's go back to the Fane example. If I'm allocating one of these names that's higher beta, valuation is high. Again, it's allocating it towards my portfolio, making sure I don't have a whole basket of these stocks. It's only one stock in my portfolio. And holistically, 
when an allocator is looking at it unbiasedly, they could say definitively that this is a growth portfolio based off of all these different valuation metrics, based off of all these things that we've studied. And also with that respect, if you add a, like a thing name to your portfolio, you need to have something that's going to counterbalance it to keep you within that mandate. So it's very hard to build a whole portfolio around that because then you're just not following your mandate. You're not being a growth investor. Now, the last thing I will say about the quantitative framework, and surprisingly, I don't hear about this a lot, and I don't see a lot of research on this besides like hedging strategies. It's not something that even like a lot of the well-known famous investors talk about, but it's how to deal with earnings events. Anyone who's been involved in the marketplace that's an active investor is know these events are just frankly difficult and more often annoying than not. So it's something that I'm going to have to deal with throughout my entire career. So you have to be able to handle these very well. And from a risk standpoint, basically these earnings events, if we're holding the stock for a year and a half, two years, you have a lot of them that occur. So you want to be able to handle them well. So basically what it comes down to is you're going to have this quant model. It's something that I use that tells you how much risk this event based off of these various different scenarios is going to be in your portfolio, how much of an impact this event is going to be on a relative basis, meaning like what percentage of your portfolio is at risk based off of this one event. And it uses different scenarios like your base case, worst case, best case, and it applies a multiple on that for the underlying volatility, et cetera. And it says, it gives you an output knowing that you can adjust that. So, hey, if my carrying value in this position is at 25%, but this stock has a huge implied volatility. And historically, the last eight times it's reported, it's done this and forward looking, it should look like this. Then most often time I look at that number and I say, wow, I got to pull that back. So it fits into my total portfolio risk tolerance. So it's that earnings events from a growth perspective is something that's very significant. Oddly, it's not talked about, but being able to handle those events is very, very important, especially early on in the stock move. So what's most critical is the when you have a position and you establish it, the first or the second order of the earnings report is going to dictate how you're going to be able to carry that position moving forward. Essentially, if you're avoiding the hiccups in the beginning, everything else is so much easier. You're able to take those risks. So that's the quant framework of some of the things that I'm adding value on. Hopefully, the last one will be a qualitative framework. And I'll just leave it very simply as this. From a qualitative standpoint in risk, you almost want to be counterintuitive to what you think. And so I'll use an example from Stanley Druckenmiller, the 30% KGAR guy for 30 years. Unbelievable. So one of the talks he was given, or he gave, said that the question from the audience was, how did you achieve these 30% KGARs? Well, he answered it with, what I said initially in the beginning, he's able to swing at those very big pitches. He's able to sit out the markets that you're not. Capital base has to be okay with you to do that. But what he did say is that something that he does very differently, and you see this in investors' returns, is that when he has a huge year, first half of the year, he's up 40%. By any standard, that's absolutely amazing. And most managers, they want to lock in that year. They want to pack it up, go on vacation. Why? Because they know next year, those sweet AUM numbers are going to increase. They're going to get higher management fees, et cetera. Stan said, no, that's not what you do. Again, this is where it's getting to counterintuitive. It's when you have the 40% up year, you want to pull things back, understand that this environment is temporarily favoring your strategy. It's conducive towards your strategy. And you're able to look at this definitively in an unbiased standpoint, because you have a couple of metrics that lead to that. Like maybe you're trailing Kelly, for example, saying your position size should be astronomical. And it's, well, it really shouldn't. It just means you're 
everything you're doing is working. So you have to be aware of that. And so he says, hey, when I'm up 40%, I'm going to look for the next pitch. I'm going to have my entire team look for that next pitch because that way, if it does come, I have the ability to size it proportionally where now all of a sudden I could have maybe a double the return that I expected to have. And that's where most people do not do. It's not. It's against human nature. But if you want to have those big kagers, that's something that needs to be in your wheelhouse. So you mentioned with Stanley Drunkenmiller there, the idea of your style's in favor. Obviously, factor timing is a big hot topic over the last couple of years. But is this something you see on the discretionary side as well, that there are times when growth investing is easier or it seems like it's in favor and you can do no wrong? And there's other times where just as a style, it seems to be very out of favor? Yeah, I think to answer that is both, or maybe it depends. I hate answering questions like that, but I feel like I answer almost all questions, to be truthfully, is like it depends in certain scenarios. But if we look at it from a correlations base, yeah, you could see when certain metrics are growth factors that are working just by correlations. And then you could also see, again, like I mentioned, these uh, trailing numbers that you have that determine certain factors in your portfolio. So again, if all of these metrics are saying, hey, you need to take a lot of risk in the market, it's not that you should take risk for any given reason. It's because that all things pushed to the side is that your strategy is being favored. So it's something that you need to be aware of. So what will actually make you cut a position when things go against you? What are you looking at to say, you want to know what this idea didn't work, I need to get out? Right. So I'll just touch up on a couple of these. Most of them are pretty well known, but again, it goes back to the process. You have to follow these. And what's really hard, so the first one is, or the first two I'll say is a position stop or a regular stop loss. Plain Jane, very simple. Everyone knows it. Okay, but why do we have these positions? So the one that I like to use, which oddly is going to be very tight for some of our listeners, is that generally I want to have like a 7% stop loss. And the reason for that is because in terms of law of percentages, if I have a 7% loss, then I only need about 7% return roughly, slightly more to get back to even. But all of a sudden, if I have a 33% gain, then you need like a 50% plus return to get back to even. So how often do you have those 50% returns? Not often for most managers. So you want to be able to keep things tight. And the reason for that is, again, going back to percentages, but also you want to avoid drawdowns in your portfolio. It's something you have to be aware of, especially in today's day and age. The capital allocators, they're allocating a ton of money towards strategies that they're able to say, well, hey, this is what the equity curve is going to look like under any of these given simulations. For So from a discretionary standpoint, you know that's what they're doing. You have to make your portfolio look like that. And If you're running a concentrated portfolio, you have to follow some of these position limits or stop limits, because if not, then your equity curve is not going to look like that and you're not going to get capital allocated. So the 7% or the 10% portfolio limit is what I like to use. Something that I use as well is a time stop. So most people don't talk about a time stop for a couple of different reasons, and I think I know why. And it's because that you invest a ton of money, a ton of time into a particular idea and it's not working and you've been with it for a while, maybe a quarter or two, and you're still with it. And that eats into your opportunity cost of capital. And the reason is behaviorally is you have so much invested. So outside of position stops and regular stop losses, time stops are very important, especially when you're getting in good markets because it's a relative metric. It means, hey, it doesn't matter how good you think your research is or your thesis is. The market is not rewarding it, so you're effectively wrong. So you need to reallocate that capital to the most optimal source. And 
Look, I've done it a lot of times. You work on an idea forever, and then all of a sudden, everything aligns. It says, hey, you have to sell this position, and it's not fun. It's usually not a good day in the office, but it's something that keeps you in business. It's something that keeps you always being in tune with the market, too. If you have a position that gets too far away against you, or if you're just sitting with a position that's eating up in terms of your opportunity cost of capital, then that's where you run into trouble. The other metrics that you can use is a simple percentage off high of your portfolio of when to reduce exposure. This can lead a series of steps. It could be a step back process. So meaning if you're X percent, you reduce exposure. If you're an additional percentage, you reduce it. And what that allows you to do is kind of like a trend factor is that, hey, if everything goes really bad and it turns into a bear market, your exposure is going to be very light. Now, the other side is that is in theory, this does increase your portfolio turnover slightly. But it's something that you have to think about as being an investor. It's would you rather have a slightly higher portfolio turnover in order to minimize those drawdowns and have a smoother equity curve versus the other side of that. And that's one of the things I find really fascinating about your process is it's not just long only buy and hold concentrated investing. You touch a little bit on the idea of using leverage. You guys will go flat and you've mentioned to me in the past, you guys will even short some of the portfolio managers. So there really is a full flexibility for you in terms of not only managing position risk, but many different ways managing entire portfolio holistically, the risk going along with it. So let's actually look at the other side of the coin here. We talked about when things go wrong, how do you manage risk and, and what makes you sell? How do you take a position that's doing well for you What's and decide to get out of it? What is like a positive sell criteria look for you when you say, okay, this position did its job. I'm happy with the return. I'm ready to get out. Behaviorally, when it's time to sell, you don't want to because everything's working well. You're making a ton of money and you think it's going to persist. When all of the metrics that you use, that's why you use a quantitative process, tells you, nope, you're wrong. You have to sell based off of these factors because empirically, if we look back, all of these factors conducively say we should. And they, again, they prove, prove to be significant. So from a valuation base, a sell role, one of them is going to be a multiple expansion. The punchline is that if a stock doubles generally in a short period of time, you're going to want to sell it. Why? Because it's going to revert back to its longer term average. And if you have an oversized position, again, wanting to minimize that portfolio drawdown, that's going to help offset that drawdown in your portfolio. And are you talking about double in price or are you talking about double in fundamentals, like a PE ratio? So both. So you could take your current PE, apply a multiple on it based off forward earnings. And if you use an adjustment factor, maybe a double adjustment factor, 100% growth in the PE expansion, you will sell it. And that will actually give you a price target. It sounds very simple, but when you go back and look at different look back periods, that actual doubling of the PE multiple is an interesting factor to look at. I will say the data that I've studied on that is, in the last like decade or two, it hasn't been something that you want to use because it leads to a lot of false positives or just like negative metrics in general. But before that, it worked pretty well. So maybe in the future it does. And then going back to the other side of that coin is in price. Yeah, if a stock doubles in price, then again, it's kind of like the factor if it's gone up too fast, too quickly. And yes, we want to have the momentum anomaly on our side, but that's just not sustainable. So you can still have a position in the stock but you want to pull it back in terms of managing your total risk of your portfolio. Now, the other thing that we could talk about is that earning surprises and breaking expectations. So we're talking about when to sell a position in terms of like when it looks good and when it looks bad. Well, if all the data, it says it should do X and all of a sudden it does Y, well, that's a sell rule. That's something that's going to pop up on your screens that says, hey, we should sell this stock. And it gets into the, again, the breaking expectations thing. And 
one way to get in the trouble of your portfolio is all of a sudden you have all these rules that are starting to break your expectations, but you're still with the idea. That's a negative sign. So all of a sudden, if the company is reporting 20, 30, 40% earnings growth for several quarters, and then they have a negative surprise where they're, where if they report, let's say half of that, a 15% growth number, and all of a sudden you dig into the fundamentals and you say, well, yeah, I see why it missed this quarter and I see why it's going to persist over the next two quarters. So I probably want to at least trim this position down. Now, a really basic one in terms of like a sell rule, it can be just this one's a little bit easy to follow. It makes a lot of sense, right? And it goes into like a trend effect. And if you study our model books, you see this a lot. It's basically when a stock becomes too high or too far stretched from a longer term, like moving average, for example, generally you'll know that it's going to revert towards normal price levels or its long-term price levels. And if you overlay that with the fundamental factors in its earnings growth, most often they go hand in hand. So if their earnings have been growing at triple digits for several quarters, that's not sustainable in the future. It's going to revert. Usually the price has followed that. So now it needs to revert. So yeah, you're using like kind of like a longer-term moving average strategy, but you're overlaying it with earnings. So it's like that blend of quantumental. I think you've used the phrase quantitative metrics at least a dozen times in this conversation, which again, for me, everything you talk about is having a disciplined rules-based process, some sort of checklist. I know your firm has so much of what you do is supported by empirical research constructed by a quant team at your firm. You've got all this data at your fingertips that the firm has uh, accrued over the last several decades. When you take a step back, how much of what you do do you think can be systematized at the end of the day? How much do you think can be captured by a quant? I think most of what I do on a personal basis can be systematized. I'm not exactly sure in the exact numbers, but maybe 80% of it can, perhaps even more. And then you're thinking of, well, then what's the other 20%? Well, the other 20% is what we get paid for. And in terms of the absolute, that's our alpha. And in terms of an absolute dollar amount, it's very significant. And what makes up that 20% some of the most, I guess I'll finish with the going back to the sources of edge. I think it comes down to the position size of the portfolio and your bets. If you break up your quant metrics from your active return, well, how much does your weight in your portfolio deviate from the benchmark times your expected return and then take all of these different factors? And well, yeah, it says what the position size in your portfolio will lead to a different results. And if you have two portfolio managers that are trafficking in the same exact names in a portfolio, but they weight them differently, you'll have drastically different returns. So I think part of being compensated as a, a discretionary PM is knowing when to increase those weights or decrease them. And I think that's maybe only to Terminating the like remaining 20%, but in an absolute sense, it's very significant. All right, Jason, last question of the podcast. This is final question of the season for everyone. And it's a bit of a hypothetical. And the hypothetical is I'm going to ask you to sell every investment you have, and you can only invest in one thing for the rest of your life. It can be an asset class. It can be an investment strategy. It can be whatever you want. But what are you investing in and why? <laughs> okay, that's a tricky one. So so I sell everything, I have no exposure. You've got zero exposure. Then I'm probably going with like an all-world global index or something like that. I need some type of expected return that's not going to blow up. I'm not going to take too much risk outside in strictly to EM or mostly EM, but I will, yeah, I'll say a combination of everything. Maybe this is a slight hedge answer, but a global portfolio, maybe long short. Well, Jason, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. <laughs>